All right. So in this one, I am going to be talking about an article that I wrote for the Daily Beast, uh, which came out earlier this week. It is entitled Culture War Red Meat uh, is All the GOP Serves the Working Class. And I can't really take credit for that title. Uh, that comes from my editor, Anthony Fisher, but uh, I, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy saying it. Uh, but in any case, uh, I think a good entry point into what this article is about, and I'll just kind of, you know, go through it. And then if there are questions, you know, there are people in the queue, you know, to call in, I'll take a few calls, uh, at the end. Uh, but a good entry point to this would be thinking about Senator Ted Cruz, uh, Republican from Texas and the speech that he gave at the last, uh, conservative political, uh, uh, the, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, conservative, um, uh, you know, the CPAC, right? Sorry, I'm just losing the uh, losing the acronym uh, for a second. Uh, so, conservative political action committee. Um, so, uh, the, here's the uh, the summation that he gave on Twitter. Uh, Cruz, when he was tweeted out, you know, the uh, the speech, he says, uh, the Republican Party is not the country of country clubs. It is the party of hardworking, blue-collar men and women. Uh, so here's a more expansive quote from, uh, you know, like the original of the speech itself. Uh, he says, um, you know, Donald Trump ain't going anywhere. They, of course, it's they. Uh, this is uh, this is just how conservative rhetoric works in 2022. It's always just they. They look at Donald Trump and the millions of people who went to battle fighting alongside him, and they're terrified. They want him to go away. Let me tell you this right now. Donald J. Trump ain't going anywhere, said Cruz. The Republican Party is not the party of country clubs. It's the party of steel workers and construction workers and tax, taxi drivers and cops, and firefighters, and waitresses. Um, he added, "This is a, that is our party. These deplorables are here to stay. All right, so let's just go through those categories that, uh, he's, you know, that Ted Cruz is claiming the Republican Party is a party of, uh, because it's not you know, the party of country clubs. So the party of, um, in fact, uh, this, the, I'm getting this quote from the, uh, uh, the Sean Hannity uh, the Hannity.com, uh, where he has an extended quote, but um, but here's a um, uh, but I think here's actually a more complete quote. Right, he says the Republican Party is the party of steel workers and construction workers and pipeline workers and taxi cab drivers and cops and firefighters and waiters and waitresses. All right, so let's think about all those categories. Uh, and uh, everything that Cruz is claiming in those, that speech. And then we're going to look at the actual party platform that was just adopted by the Republican Party in the state that Cruz represents, Texas. Uh, and I think this is just a really striking <laughs> instance of the contrast between you know the rhetoric and reality of the contemporary GOP. Not that the Democrats are anything to write home about. I do actually get into that a little bit in the article, but the um, but the the contrast between what they're you know the Republicans are claiming for themselves and what they really are is is really something to behold. 
And it was not always such, right? So the first thing I say at the beginning of the article is when Mitt Romney ran for president in 2012, you know, he was running as a unabashed representative of what Bernie Sanders would call the billionaire class. Uh, he would say things like corporations are people, my friends, and smile nervously like he didn't understand why anybody uh, anywhere disagreed with that statement. You know, he had a op-ed called Let Detroit Go Bankrupt. Uh during the 2008 uh, crash in, uh, in the New York Times. Um, you know, he talked about makers and takers. Uh, you know, the 47% of the country who he claimed only want to take, you know, social services that, you know, hardworking people are generating, right? I mean, so that was Mitt Romney. You know, he had, you know, in 2012, when Mitt Romney ran for president, the only thing he lacked was... Um, you know, it was like a bag of money with a dollar sign on it, or maybe like a monocle, uh, like the uh, the Monopoly guy. I mean, to, to a great extent, that's why Obama was able to pull out that election, which in theory should not have gone well for him, because he was the sitting president at a time when the economy was not great. Um, and, you know, he should have been pretty vulnerable. But uh, Mitt Romney was such a one percenter stereotype that the election ended up actually being a referendum on Romney instead of about the incumbent president. Now, fast forward to 2016, four years later, and Donald Trump is running for president, and Donald Trump is running in almost the opposite of the way that Mitt Romney ran. Um, you know, he's really trying to shed that image. You know, he talks a lot about bad trade deals, you know, hurting people in the heartland, uh, he talks about draining the swamp of D.C. corruption. Uh, he goes to, when he's campaigning in Appalachia, he's promising to bring back the coal mines. When he's campaigning in Youngstown, Ohio, he's, uh, he's promising to bring back the factories. Now, all of this was bullshit, obviously. Right? Trump didn't mean any of it. Um, you know, he renegotiated some trade deals a little bit, but not in any way that's tremendously advantageous uh, to uh, working class people in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin. Some of it, I think, you know, to be completely fair, was a little bit better. But I mean, like, really, those, you know, the bilateral deals looked much more like NAFTA than not. And the rest of it, he was just lying about. Right. The By the time he left office, even before COVID, you know, there were fewer coal mining jobs than ever. Um you know, he certainly hadn't brought factories, you know, back to uh, to Youngstown where he told people to, you know, not sell their house. Um, I mean, really just depraved, cynical stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, even if he had brought a few industrial jobs back, there wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been the kind of industrial jobs that people missed. Right. Like the reason why working in a factory in Youngstown was better uh, than work that even if you're not unemployed, right? It was better than like working in a Walmart in Youngstown now. You know, it's better to work in a factory in Youngstown in the 80s or 90s, is because those were good jobs. Those could, you know, that was like an income that could support a family in a fairly decent way. You know, you listen to the, um, uh, you know, the episode uh, that uh, that I did a while back. My favorite episode of the show. Uh, with uh, Daniel Musig, where he's talking about the way that the lifestyle of um, you know of former steelworkers in Pittsburgh changed. You know when those factories closed. I mean, it's it's really a dramatic, just dystopian crash 
in people's standard of living because, again, those industrial jobs were good jobs. Those were jobs you could support a family on, have, you know, have like a boat in the garage, um, you know, maybe have a place to stay somewhere else. Uh, you know, like the place up north, you know, when I was growing up, that like even unionized factory workers and school teachers would have when I was growing up in mid-Michigan. Uh, and any industrial jobs that Trump would have anything to do with bringing back, even if he had, I mean, he was largely lying even about that, but even if he had, they wouldn't have been good jobs like that because the reason why, like, steel jobs in Youngstown uh, were, or Pittsburgh were good jobs, it's not because there's anything particularly pleasant about working in a steel plant. It's because the United Steel Workers of America, right? It's, it's because those were unionized jobs that, you know, you had those big, powerful industrial unions. And if Trump was nothing else, he was a huge union buster. I mean, you look at the people that he appointed to the National Labor Relations Board and the kind of rulings that they did. Uh, Paul Prescott had a really good article about this during the uh, 2020 election at Jacobin. You know, it was really bad, right? And I mean, not to give any sort of pass to like the Obama administration, which did plenty of horrible, disgusting things that made life worse for the working class. But, you know, the... Obama and LRB appointees really weren't waging war against organized labor in anything like the same way, if you look at the contrast between the rulings. Um, because, you know, they represented a different faction of the ruling class that had a different political strategy. And uh, and so, you know, Trump was, you know, spent four years uh, union-busting, deregulating, and generally making a mockery of everything that he'd said in the campaign trail. But it did work, right? It worked for him in 2016. It's very unlikely that he would have won those Rust Belt swing states, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Uh, if he hadn't talked like that, if he hadn't said all of those things, I mean, these are states where they were so close, like the margins of victory were so narrow that like the slightest wind would have carried Hillary Clinton over the finish line. So, of course, it's wildly multi-causal. There are lots and lots of different reasons the election happened the way that it did. But um, but that's certainly one of them, right? And, you know, even in 2020, partially because he had activated a lot of voters, you know, with this kind of rhetoric, um, Trump came much closer to winning in 2020 than he really had any right to come. I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you really look at this objectively, I mean, this is... Um, you know, 2020 election happened in the middle of a pandemic that he just spectacularly mismanaged, that because he mismanaged it so spectacularly led to just this degree of economic meltdown that would have been unthinkable uh, beforehand. It happened, you know, a few months after, like, you know, half the country had been on fire, you know, during the uh, post-George Floyd unrest. Uh, Trump should have been slaughtered in that election. And, you know, part of the reason that he wasn't is that Joe Biden was a pretty bad candidate, you know, but, you know, even so there was, there was high turnout on both sides. And the fact that Trump did have this pseudo populist rhetoric, I think did actually help him a lot. You know, that's sort of a, um, you know, for some reason it's become a, a liberal dogma that you're never allowed to say that any fact, any factor played any role in helping Trump win in 2016 and come close in 2020, other than racism, you know, you're certainly not allowed to use the phrase economic anxiety or else you're just making excuses for racists. But I think if we're real about this, right, you know, the pseudo populist economic rhetoric did help him and other Republicans noticed, which is why 
you get even somebody like Ted Cruz, right? In 2016, um, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were both, you know, just like totally square establishment Republicans. That's certainly how Trump treated them. And, you know, when he was making fun of them then, but they've both done this attempted populist rebrand. I mean, that quote that I read earlier from Ted Cruz, he's talking about, um, you know, he's talking about uh, the corporate media, like he's a guest on Democracy Now! in 2007. Uh, He's, you know, he's listed off all these categories of blue collar jobs and said, oh, the Republican Party is your party, the party of the you know, steel workers and pipeline workers and waiters and waitresses and taxi drivers, you know, not just the party of the country clubs. Um, and certainly like Josh Howley, for example, likes to, uh, likes to talk this way. Uh, so does JD Vance, uh, who I've, I've covered before in a previous episode. So does Blake masters who I haven't covered yet, but certainly will. Uh, one thing those last three guys have in common, by the way, Howley Vance and, um, masters is that they were all proteges of one billionaire supervillain peter Thiel, um which i think makes the pretense to populism pretty funny i mean you know how many if you're an actual populist right if you're actually going to do things to help out the people at the expense of the ruined elites it's pretty strange that a billionaire would be funding you you know that he wouldn't be worried that you're going to take away some of his money and give it to the people but um in any case, right, all these people have, have taken this up. As I said, certainly Cruz took it up. And uh, something that, you know, is a is a point, you know, that I've been trying to push in sort of every forum that I can lately, since I think it's so incredibly important, is that everything these people do flies in the face of this rhetoric, right? So I did a different article in the Daily Beast a few months back when uh, they had... Um, Joe Biden, you remember, in the State of the Union, uh, said that uh, he was going to push this price cap for insulin. It was going to be capped out at $30. Now, it's pretty obscene that um, insulin is sold at all, right? That it's not just free. I mean, you know, like if you get COVID, that's treated for free. But somehow, if you have diabetes, you know, you're on your own. Uh, but, you know, price cap is the sort of very least you can do, right? You know, if it's if it's going to be... Um, uh, you know, if it's, uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Ted Cruz did leave his dog in the, uh, in the house while it was freezing while he went to Cancun. That's that, that says something about him as a human being. But, uh, in any case, all of the biggest so-called MAGA populists in the house and Senate, you know, your your Marjorie Taylor Greens, your Josh Halley's, they all voted against even capping the price of insulin at $30, right? Even that is too much of a curb of the divine right of capital uh, for for these people, right? I mean, it's it's a you know truly obscene uh, group of people, and this party platform that was just adopted by the Texas GOP has uh, goes even further. It goes it goes way further, right? Like it it says so. Just to start with. Uh, it declares their opposition to card check, right? So um, card check, for people who aren't familiar, was a, big, it was a big aspect of the PRO Act. It's also something that Obama ran on, but of course did not follow through in any way on uh, when he ran for president in 2008. It's basically a way to make it easier to organize a union, that you can... Um, uh, that you can 
just if the majority of workers at a work site sign a union card, right, you know, then like you don't have to, that's good enough, right? The majority has expressed its will. You don't have to go through this whole process of an election where the, you know, bosses can put you in captive audience meetings and all this stuff. Uh, you could just say, okay, it's done. Of course, they say they're opposed to that. They also say they're opposed to mandatory family or sick leave uh, for municipalities, right? So, like, if, if, like, the city of Austin say they probably do have an ordinance like this, but, you know, if they don't yet, um, if the city of Austin, say, passes a uh, local ordinance um, saying uh, that you uh, requiring that uh, companies with city contracts uh, give their workers paid family or sick leave, right? The, uh, the Texas Republican Party thinks that cities should be banned from doing that. They say so explicitly in the platforms. They're opposed to card check. They're opposed to paid family, you know, mandatory paid family or sick leave. Um, they're, uh, they're opposed to both federal and local minimum wage laws. Um, and uh, in, in my favorite, right, they just say flatly, they have the sentence, we support the privatization of social security. So you think about all of this rhetoric about, oh, the GOP is going to be the party of the working class. Now that's a hell of a party of the working class that, uh, that wants to privatize social security, wants to, to go back to those categories that people listed off in the Ted Cruz speech, you know, the, the, you know, waitresses, the, uh, you know, the cab drivers, uh, the, uh, the, you know, pipeline workers, all this stuff. Well, look, I mean, if you have, um, you know, if you're if you're a pipeline worker and you and your fellow pipeline workers want to organize a union so you can have some say in wages and work conditions, um, the Texas Republican Party is on record as saying they want that to be harder. Uh, the um, if you you know if you're a waitress and you know you and uh, uh, and you know you uh, you know your boss is paying you less than minimum wage, right? You know they have. Uh, or I don't know, you know, they have a uh, the the restaurant has a contract with the city government, you know, and you want some paid sick leave if you get sick, you know, they very aggressively do not have their back, you know, your back. So, uh, and of course, you know, I mean, the fact they want to, you know, take they don't even, if you don't have a nice union pension, uh, and you're hoping to rely on social security in your old age, well, as as George Carlin once said, they want to take that away and give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. So, you know, the things that people I saw really, the reason I wrote this article is, you know, the the things that I saw people focusing on when they wrote about the uh, this, you know, state, uh, state platform for the Texas GOP were uh, most, you know, to some extent, the sort of really grim, cruel social policy positions, right? They really go after gay and trans people very hard in this platform. They want to, you know, they want to ban weed, you know, uh, gay marriage, you know. You know, I think Nathan Robinson was talking about it with him. He had some nice alliteration. They want to ban uh, uh, ganja gambling and gay marriage. Uh, so, so much for personal freedom. Uh, so I saw a certain amount of commentary on that, right? They didn't even allow the log cabin Republicans to set up a booth at the um, at the state convention, uh, and so that is appalling, and that's worth pointing out. And you know, and I also saw probably the majority of the commentary about it was about how they've officially endorsed uh, in their party platform they've officially endorsed the conspiracy theory that says that Donald Trump really won 
the 2020 election. And again, that's appalling, but it's also not super surprising. But the thing I really wanted to point out is the thing that's a little bit less obvious, which is this night and day contrast between their official rhetoric. Right. You know, people like Ted Cruz say, no, we're not the party of country clubs anymore. We're the party of the hardworking blue collar men and women. And then what they're actually proposing in this platform, which, like I say in the article, is every possible pro-corporate and anti-worker measure you can think of short of reinstituting child labor and coal mines or, you know, giving bosses the right of prima nocta. And, you know, this is the kind of point that I wish more people made more often because the contradiction is just giant and they get away with it. Anyway. Uh, I'm going to take, uh, I've got two calls, so I'm going to take both of them. And if anybody else gets in the queue, I might be able to take one or two more after these, depending on how these go. So, um, Brian. Hey, can you hear me? Yep. Loud and clear. Phenomenal. Okay. So I wanted to, uh, well, when I originally called in, I wanted to talk about one thing, but you made me think of two others. So, sure. Uh, so first off, I just wanted to uh, take a note on the word populism because I I sort of use the same definition that you were just using uh, a, a working definition basically to mean like attempting to do things for the populace as, as like constructed by the majority or the broad majority. Um, but I find it super interesting how like the left in Europe has a totally different definition of that word. Like I would love to have Giannis Varoufakis and and Tom mm-hmm. Frank in a room. And just yeah. say, hey, what does even mean? Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. And I I wonder if part of the div reason for the difference might be that America is where the actual populace, like the actual populace were, right? The people who are called yeah, populace. Yeah, the People's Party. Uh, and so there is more of that better tradition of how to use the, the phrase, whereas I think maybe in Europe, like the, maybe by the time the word migrated... Uh, over yeah, it migrated Europe. upper class to upper class, and then came back down. Yeah, maybe it, like by the time it migrated and gone through the sort of transformation that uh, Thomas Frank is complaining about in, uh, mm-hmm. in that book. Uh, but yeah, that is super interesting. I mean, I generally assume that when somebody claims to be a populist, um, you know, they're at least pretending that in some sense they're on the side of the people and against elites. Um, right, but if you hear someone accusing someone of being a populist, what do you think? Yeah, if I hear somebody being accused of being a populist, I think they're being accused of like being a demagogue. That's like the pejorative way of of using the word mm-hmm. populist. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I find that, that tension weird, but yeah. interesting. Um, so that is what I actually uh, wanted to call about. But you reminded me, uh, I, I got here like three or four minutes late, so you may have uh, mentioned it, but Rubio's uh, uh, family leave plan is even more horrifying than I thought it was. Um, oh, do tell. Because, uh, as we all know, that the plan is that uh, you take Social Security benefits from yourself in order to pay your family leave, right? It comes out of your, your future retirement. But yeah. what I did not notice until I uh, until I was like scrolling through Twitter and saw a snippet of an article I think from Bloomberg um, yesterday was that if you die before you collect Social Security benefits, they want the money from your estate. Oh my God! Right? Like I I I had to like double check that I had read it correctly. I was like, what? 
you're a state. You die, you die in, a, in a car crash, and and the feds are coming knocking on your door saying you owe back taxes to Social Security because you took pregnancy leave. Could you imagine? That is something else. I mean, every time any of these people do this, um, like I think in the. Um, Try to remember this one. The uh, like didn't wasn't Rubio also the one who had uh, his um, his big um, you know he made this big deal about how he was going to uh, um, how he was going to do this like big like pro worker like you know workplace uh, uh, oh yeah it was the T Max right you know that like he. You know, all of Rubio's efforts to, you know, to brand himself as a populist, he said, all right, he's finally coming out with his big piece of pro-worker legislation, the Team Act. Uh, this is like several months back. And what it does is it's a, it's act, it's a proposal to legalize company unions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I almost forgot about that one. When, when you brought it up, I thought you were going to say that he was attacking only woke companies. But no, I, the company unions, too. He's got the full Yeah, no, he did that. Yeah, I mean, he did that too. I mean, that was his, um, uh, yeah, his op-ed about the Amazon unionization effort and in uh, uh, Bessemer. He said, uh, like, you know, you read it and the whole thing like makes it, you know, it's like if you just kind of like blurry watercolor, like you know, you sort of somebody gives you the gist of it, it sort of sounds like he's on the side of the union, but he makes it pretty clear that like that's not at all his position. He's like, no, look, maybe like Amazon deserves it for being too woke. Right. You know, but like he makes it very, very clear in there that he's generally anti-union. Um, you know, I mean, whatever anybody says talks about, you know, woke. And if they're like, unions are a plague for God to come, you know, kick down on people who aren't mad at gays. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, Let's do. Uh, uh, let's just see if we can bust through these, so we can get to everybody before I go. Chase, what's on your mind? Hey Ben, how you feeling? By the way, uh, I am. A, I think I'm officially better. The uh, uh, yesterday, I uh, had to go to the grocery store, so I took a test. I tested negative, and I'm. The last couple of days, I've resumed uh, exercise and coffee, and I had a glass of you know Talisker last night, so I, I think I'm good. Good, good to hear. Good to hear. Um. We've kind of touched on this, I think, already a little bit, but, you know, uh, the thing that it's always funny to watch uh, what the actual pro-worker redistributive plans are from these people, um, especially in light of uh, Roe v. Wade getting the axe, Mm -hmm. because they're trying to make a small pivot to the, okay, we need to at least rhetorically help families or like say well we're gonna actually support families and then it ends up being like shit policies which uh are you know seven hundred dollars being kicked to uh, families and you have to pay it back to the government (laughs) 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 and it's it's like we're gonna you know we'll throw you uh you know you don't uh, we're not gonna raise your wages but we'll throw you a pizza party and also that pizza's been deducted from your wages yeah no absolutely and um and it speaks to just the, I mean, it speaks to so many things, their lack of imagination, their lack of seriousness about any actual redistributive policy. But I think 
in the background of all that is they're still very much wedded to a kind of, um, you know, government is always and at all times the problem. And as mm-hmm. long as the market forces are just left uh, by themselves unattended, they'll produce the maximum outcomes for everyone. And, you know, when you when you pair that sort of laissez-faire economic positions with this state-coerced social conservatism... Yeah. Um, you, you end up with a position which is, uh, I mean, from, from their own point of view, it's like utopian. You know what I mean? Like, it can't actually work. Uh, it, it won't actually succeed in building the kind of, or recreating the kind of, no, of course not. And it's, that's society that they yeah, want. Yeah, all those people love to wax nostalgic about the, um, uh, you know, about like single, single income households, you know, and, uh, and like, if you look at like JD Vance's, um, you know, campaign materials, he talks about that and like he, or he talks on, uh, on Twitter, I guess, about, um, how, um, you know, it'd be better for like women to stay home with the kids, but it's like, come on, like, who's kidding who here? Like, what what exactly is your plan <laughs> to uh, to restore the kind of wage levels that would make it possible for a family that wanted to do that to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's I mean that's the thing um, you know that uh, continually baffles me about all this. I guess which is I, I mean I should say like I actually do think right. I mean like I don't think there should be any sort of cultural pressure based on gender. You know that. Uh, for one particular parent to do it. But I actually do think it's a totally legitimate choice. If like, you know, if like a couple wants like one parent to stay home with the kids, like I think a, a decent society would enable that. Like, but the, uh, but like the difference is that I actually like, I actually like, don't think you could just say that it's just going to magically happen. Cause you own the limbs or something. Right. I mean, like you'd, you'd have to, uh, like you'd have to have like serious financial support for parents and, and much higher wages and stuff like that to like, actually make that a reality right it's the same thing with the the abortion stuff that like um look i don't think you know i don't think that a first trimester fetus has any moral status whatsoever i'm completely unbothered you know by um you know people making whatever family planning decisions they want to make but like if you actually do want to reduce the abortion rate if that was like a moral goal of yours um, Matt Brudick has a really good post about this. I don't know if it's from today or he just reposted it today. Um, where he, where he talks about this, he's like, look, there are, there are countries that have like really harsh anti-abortion laws and like much higher rates of abortion than the United States. Right. You know, because of, uh, of like financial, financial desperation, right. You know, people who don't think they can afford to have kids, you know, like if you actually, uh, if you actually cared about bringing it down, right? You know, if that was a that was a goal that you have, right? You know, then like you should, um, then what you should actually be proposing is like, how are we going to make life economically easier for parents? Right, right. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's um, you know, it's kind of. I mean, there's so many things that are disturbing about the worldview, but it, it kind of adds to the um, uh, the way in which um, they're use of the state to try to coerce people back into nuclear families is made extra disturbing because they have no imagination for kind of economic right. support it would take to actually allow that for, for it to exist in the 21st century. So, I mean, all you're doing is just driving people to suicide. I mean, like, it's just a, it's an insane utopian 
project on some level. And um, no, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. It's it's like a yeah, it's both like evil, but like also also completely utopian, and it's. Uh, uh, it's execution. There's no real plan because there there can't be, right? I mean, this is, um, you know, they they don't they don't actually want to, you know, want to make it easier for people to, like, have big extended families where everybody gets to, um, everybody gets to live close to each other, right? I mean, they want to they want a workforce that's maximally flexible to keep that, you know, MCM, you know, money commodity money, uh, blood wheel turning, but. Uh, I'm going to take uh, Owen real quick because uh, we have a pizza coming in like five minutes. So I want to uh, <laughs> I want to uh, I want to get in the last call and uh, and get off. But uh, Owen, what's on your mind? Sure thing, Ben. Thank you for your time today and for answering my questions, all of our questions as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Since can you hear me clearly? I can hear you loud and clear. Gotcha. Uh, since both of the last callers mentioned unions, uh, what do you believe our strategy should be to keep? the rich from weaponizing the middle class against the economic majority and from corrupting newly burgeoning unions? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I'm certainly curious to hear what you have to say. I mean, I think that, um, so, you know, when you talk about, you know, the, uh, the middle class, right, you know, that could be, um, you know, I think that could like mean a couple different things, right? So, like one thing is it could mean like small business owners, which mm. I think a lot of times, you know, I mean, the original subject was about right wing populism or pseudo populism, but I think a lot of times, like when those people talk about like ordinary people, that's who they really mean, right? They're not really counting workers at all, right? You know, they just mm-hmm. mean like you know mm-hmm. struggling small businessmen, and you know that's a that's a category that you know, is mostly going to be pretty hostile to, to organized labor, right? That they, cause oftentimes mm-hmm. people are in a very, um, you know, they have, they're like surviving on like the business itself must, might be kept afloat on a very small margin and, you know, and, uh, a profit. And like that could be, is sometimes going to be propped up by paying poverty wages. Now, I mean, I think other people who are like even smaller businessmen who are like self-employed sometimes might not have that incentive to be anti-union and you know certainly every successful left movement ever has tried to get some of those people on its side but um but that's going to be a problem right but like then you know you could also talk about like sort of middle another thing that people mean by middle class is like sort of like the professional class that you know people who have certain kinds of professional jobs that just like very roughly you have to like go to college right to get right so it sort of puts you in a somewhat elite category compared to the rest of the population but that doesn't necessarily always mean that much and i will say some of those professions like journalism is an obvious case like you've actually gotten a lot of growth of unionization in recent years because they've gotten so much more precarious you know so um you know i think there's actually some potential there although there are you know problems that come come with that i mean as far as corrupting uh you know i mean i think that the I think that a lot of people who aren't necessarily in jobs that are unionizing are going to be sympathetic if they can see that it's like actually doing a lot to raise the living standards and, you know, give a better life to like other people they might know. Um, You know, I I think that it's, um, you know, although like people who are middle class, that first group 
and that first sense are always going to be at least divided about it. I think that the, as far as like corrupted unions, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a tricky one. It's a, uh, um, actually, you know what I should do? Uh, so Sean Richmond, uh, is the author of a really good book called, um, uh, called, uh, tell the bosses that we're coming, uh, which I interviewed him about. And, um, the main show on YouTube a while ago, uh, and it's a, it's a good book. So I, I should have him back on to talk about some of this stuff because it certainly deserves an okay. episode of its own. But I uh, really appreciate the call. Really appreciate all the calls. Uh, going to have to cut it off there for today, but I'm going to be doing another one of these tomorrow, probably to talk about the um, uh, the not the last thing I did in Jacobin, but a couple ago, the, uh, the article on exploitation because I never did an episode on that. And I think that'd be really interested in the sort of much more theoretical end of the spectrum, uh, you know, because that's the one where I talk about Marx's capital and G.A. Cohen and other things and like tie in some threads in ways that people might find interested. So I'm probably going to do an episode on that tomorrow. And then on Sunday, we're going to go for number three. I'm going to have David Griscom on to talk about his, the, uh, his very first ever article in Jacobin that just came out where he gets into climate politics in Texas. So it should be really fun. I'll post information about those ASAP. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Left is best.